will be presented by Brother Jim Horton. And his subject is, What manner of person ought ye to be? And in relation to his remarks, he's asked that we consider Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens and the earth, excuse me, by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto the fire against the day of the judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to uswards, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of person ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other Scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away, with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's now give our attention to our brother Jim, whose subject is, What matter of person ought ye to be? <clears throat> Brothers and sisters and friends, it's a great pleasure and a genuine privilege to be with you for this gathering, for this time of seeking to strengthen one another, to edify one another, 
that we might walk more closely in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ and be found approved of him at his coming. I bring to you the fraternal love and very best wishes of the brothers and sisters in what used to be known as the Hamilton West Avenue Ecclesia, but is now located in Burlington and known as the Burlington Mountain Grove Christadelphian Chapel. I was asked if I could say something for this period with respect to our walk. And I'd like to begin by just looking for a couple of minutes in the most briefest and synoptic of ways at three men whose words we've already heard um, in varying degrees, both last night and what our brother Brad had to say, and today and what Brother Mike said. And those three men were men who had not identical circumstances, but they had very, very similar experiences in their maturation to become men of the mind of the Spirit of Christ. And they are James, the half-brother of the Lord, of whom Mike spoke this morning, and his compatriot, particularly after their conversion, and I say they, his compatriot Peter, and the third person is Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus. There is a sort of before-after thumbnail sketch of these men. It's already been pointed out in the first class that Jesus' family initially were supporting, but they became embarrassed by the radicalism of what he was preaching from their narrow Judaic point of view and the culture of the day, particularly the religious culture. And James, notwithstanding the unique relationship he had with his brother, ended up opposing him. You can't read the first five or six verses of the seventh chapter of John's Gospel without just being amazed. Where his brethren, it seems to me, as I read it at least, almost taunt him. This is after he cleansed the temple and all of the uproar that caused in the land from one end to the next and it fell, of course, upon their family. Where they say, you know, if you believe these things, it was the Feast of Tabernacles and they say, if you believe these things, then no prophet, you know, uh, sort of didn't, didn't use these words, but the point was, you, you've got a light here. You talk about, you know, putting a light on a hill where it can be seen and not under a bushel. Well, you need to go and, and preach these things in Judea and go up to the feast. They were well aware because it had been established so clearly beforehand for many, many, many months that the Jews at Jerusalem had sought to kill him and were continuing to seek to kill him. And so they, James is there saying, you know, if you are 
who you say you are, then you need to go up to Jerusalem and preach these things there. Knowing what it was saying, go into the lion's mouth. And Jesus said, well, you go ahead and I'll you know, come in my own time, basically. But the comment in John was, they did this because neither did his brethren believe in him. They didn't believe in him. After having been seen of his risen brother, as Paul attests to in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, in that order of who, who had seen the Lord after his resurrection, we see the man who wrote this letter from which the theme for this gathering is taken. A man who is determined to make up for lost time. You know, there are so many themes in his letter that echo his own experience. And one of the dominant themes is you have to be a doer of the work. Not a hearer only, but a doer. For three and a half years, he was a hearer of the majesty of the ministry of Jesus, preaching the things concerning Messiah and the kingdom of God. But he didn't become a doer of those things until his conversion. There's a great concern in his letter for urgency in time and for doing the work of the Lord. Peter, before his conversion, and it wasn't for none of these men, and for us is a conversion like that. It isn't a turnaround 180 degree and that's all done in one fell swoop. It's a lifetime of converting against the will of the flesh. But Peter was a man of great enthusiasm for the Lord during his ministry, but with a misplaced trust in himself. He wasn't a very good listener, even though his name seems to indicate um, one who hears. He was often too hasty and rash in his actions and not prepared to think things through. He thought he was prepared to die for the Lord, but he wasn't. And he went through that dreadful experience of denying him three times. And then having that brought home to him by the Lord on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, when he invites him to come from fishing and sit down and enjoy some some meat, some fish that the Lord had put on a coal of fires. Peter stood beside a coal of fires outside the offices of the high priest. And it was a coal of fires that is only mentioned twice in the gospel, in John. And it was the same thing. It was a charcoal fire. It wasn't a great flaming fire. And it was at such a setting that he challenged him against those three denials with the challenge, do you love me? And we know that story. We don't have time to go into it. But there would have been no doubt in Peter's mind what was happening here. And this was a part of his conversion. He was told also at that time that he would face a death that he would not like. That others would take him and bind him and take him where he wouldn't want to go. And he alludes to that 
in the first chapter of the book we just read. He comes after his experiences, a quieter, less boisterous man, enthusiastic for his Lord as ever, but a humbler and quieter man, a listener rather than acting before thinking. And he was now truly prepared to die for Christ. And he makes that point in his letter, the second letter, that he was anticipating that the time would be soon when his decease would take place. And that's why he wrote the second letter with such urgency. And the third person, of course, is the Apostle Paul, who, as Saul of Tarsus, swept away with his own pride in the law, having been brought at the feet of Gamaliel, brought up there and been the star pupil, as it were, being the, the new champion for the men of Judea who were so narrowly trapped in the law, as Mike has pointed out this morning, trusting in the traditions of the fathers. He was, as Saul of Tarsus, and we can't sugarcoat this, a cold, heartless, resentless, fierce opponent to anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth. He was a brutal man and a responsible for the murder of many. Not just did he witness to Stephen's death and consent to it, but he made, as it were, many widows and orphans from those first early believers. And he never forgot that. He couldn't. It was burned into his brain. He said to Peter, to um, to Timothy, and they are, I think, the most burning words. I mean, he said so many times how he recognized he was such a sinner and had such a fight throughout even his work after being called by Jesus on the way to Damascus. He was so stricken by this flesh. And he wrote to Timothy that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, he said. There's no one in his mind who was a worse sinner than he was. But we see him after being confronted by his Lord on the way to Damascus, saying, Lord, what would thou have me do? He does a 180 degree turn and he becomes the most consistently humbled, loving, tender man of the New Testament, at least in my estimation. He becomes the servant of his Lord. He's the one who now becomes the hunted and not the hunter. He becomes totally selfless, totally committed to proclaim the gospel of the reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation, the gospel that was given him to take to the Gentiles. And we see him in that list in Corinthians where he cites 
all of the burdens upon him. At the end of it all, he said, beside that, all these things he had gone through, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the ecclesias. And so we see these three men, all of them, before and after conversion. Implicit in Peter's words, what manner of men ought we to be? He's talking about, you know, all of us, not just the gender. What manner of persons ought we to be? Implicit in that, it seems to me, is a strong implication that if we are not what we should be, then there's a need for conversion on our part. And I have submitted earlier that conversion is not a 180 degree turn once and it's all done. It's a lifetime affair. But we see these three men having needed for various circumstances to go through a significant directional change in their lives. And we see them after as humble, urgent workers for the flock. Peter was to feed the Lord's sheep. James doesn't identify himself as the Lord's half-brother. That's what the flesh would do, wouldn't it? He simply says he's a servant. And the Apostle Paul, as we've said, sees himself as the worst sinner that has ever lived. They were all made humble by their failures to serve. The second thing is, in their conversion, they all saw the resurrected Jesus. They all saw him in that time before his ascension to the Father where he is now. And they all made an about face and committed their lives totally to the service of God. We don't have the benefit of seeing the risen Lord physically. They did. But we have the great benefit of this word, which gives us the fullest picture of the purpose of God. And a great, much, a great deal of it and much of the wisdom in it is from their writing under the Spirit on our behalf. It was the seeing of the resurrected Jesus that allowed them to learn of the power of the resurrection of Jesus in their own personal lives. And somehow or other in our lives we must come to the same evaluation. The resurrection of Christ cannot just be a doctrinal piece of theology. It has to have a personal dimension that touches your heart and my heart on an ongoing basis. What came from that with them was a sense of gratitude. Gratitude in the deepest and most profound sense was at the heart of these three men after their conversion.
We look at their writings and what we see is they all shared a palpable sense of urgency for the new Ecclesia. A sense of urgency for not losing the faith. In looking at what I might say to you by way of encouragement in walk, I gave long and hard thought to speaking from those well, many, many, many well-known scriptures that are part of our lexicon about the admonitions of the dangers of the last day, the need to hang on to sound doctrine, the need to be humble, the need to be doers of good work, the need to serve one another, the need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, the need to avoid all of the filth of the flesh in a depraved and filthy world around us, the need for sanctification. And I thought to myself, you know, I feel a little bit in thinking about saying those things, not that it's not important to say those things. I think it's vitally important that we repeat those things and never lose them. It's the word of God. It's there for our instruction in righteousness. But for this morning, I thought, I felt a little bit like John in his first letter when he wrote to the, the, the believers. And he said, brethren, I haven't written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. And then he went on. Well, you know better than I probably most of those scriptures that tell us about how we should walk and live in these last days. That tell us about what manner of persons we ought to be. So I have thought about, is there anything that I could say that might help us get in underneath all of those instructions? And we're going to read some of it in just a few minutes from, from uh, the Apostles' writing to the Ephesians and probably the Colossians. But is there anything about our service in these last days as we look at the two antithetical things of service and humility and in truth and sanctification to the truth as it is in Jesus. And the other side of the coin, which is the things of the flesh and of perishing and of no hope. Well, I don't know whether you will agree with me or not, but I think there is something conceptually that has to be in place in order that when we read scriptures like the fifth chapter of, of Ephesians, it will have the soil in which to take root that we might become the manner of persons that we ought to be in God's sight and in our Lord's sight to serve him in these last days, which may be very challenging for us, brothers and sisters. We don't know, but we've been blessed to be the most... What's the word I want? 
privileged generation on the face of this earth. We have more material goods. We have more things to make our life easy than any other generation of believers. I mean, it's a quantum leap from where we are in terms of all the comforts of this life and where the disciples were in Jesus' day and where those early disciples were in Brother Thomas's day. He may be called to task for that. To whom much is given, much is required, Jesus said. Certainly was of him in his life, and it may be of ours before things are done. We don't know, but we would be very foolish to think that we would somehow be totally spared from urgent, pressing, horrific, challenging trials and tribulations before our Master returns. We hope not. We pray not. But we cannot take God's place and determine what will happen. So I'm trying to look at something that would help us, rather than just repeat those scriptures, think about what it is that would allow all of that counsel in the the New Testament about the kind of people we have to be. Those things we know so well because we read them, we exhort each other about them, we write about them, and they are part of our heritage in terms of our walk. Struck me there is something in the first chapter of Romans that gives us a key. And I would ask you to turn with me to the first chapter of Romans for a moment. This chapter has two very clear and distinct divisions. The first 17 verses deal with praise and thanks to God by the pen of the Apostle Paul with respect to the believers in Rome. And it speaks of the power of God in the gospel of Christ to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says in verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, The just shall live by faith. And he goes on to develop that theme, as we know, for the next several chapters through to certainly the eighth chapter, the end of the eighth chapter, and dominantly so in chapters 3, 4, and 5, and 6. But at verse 18, the scene changes dramatically. And now, he is talking about men and women who have deliberately turned their back on God. And he says in verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. He's talking about men and women who have some knowledge of what is true with respect to God. He says, because that which they may know of God is manifested in them, for God has showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world. And this division between these people has been there since Cain and Abel. He says, from the creation of the world are clearly seen and being understood by the things that are made, even you know, the eternal power and Godhead of the almighty Yahweh. 
So they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. And he goes on with his indictment for the rest of the chapter against such selfish, self-centered, wicked people who would become so reprobate and disobedient. It seems to me the clue to what might help us enrich the ground in which to put into play all of those scriptural injunctions about the kinds of men and women we should be in these last days is in verse 21. How did this happen that men and women turned away from God so desperately? Because, he says, that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Why didn't they glorify him as God? Well, it's in the next phrase. Neither were thankful. If one is not thankful and grateful for the goodness and mercy of God in their life, if one is not thankful with a sense of deeply embedded, and I use that word very purposely, deeply embedded gratitude in their hearts, how can they begin to glorify God? The reason they didn't glorify God is because there was no thankfulness. There was no sense of gratitude. But God has done and in the hearts and minds of the three men that we talked about to begin with, there was a sense of gratitude that was overwhelming. I'd like to speak then for just a few more minutes in the time we have available about gratitude as the prerequisite, the absolute prerequisite for acceptable service in God. For acceptable service in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about just being thankful. I mean, we're all thankful. We give thanks from our hearts. And we have many wonderful prayers of thanks in our meetings. We are grateful. It isn't just a matter of thanking God for our food to sanctify it. It's a matter of how we look at the world. It's a matter of what eyeglasses we have on. It's a matter of what's in here in terms of the very fiber of our being. I'm going to read you just a few things from the Psalms with respect to the importance of thankfulness. And then I want to tell you a story and then we'll have time to look at a couple of scriptures by way of encouragement. 
Psalm 92, it's a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises to his name. And those two things go together. Verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 92, it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. Psalm 100, verse 5 verses, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praises. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. This is prophetic in a way of the reality in the kingdom, but it is also carries an abundant obligation upon ourselves now. Concept of that we are the sheep of the Lord's pasture. Psalm 79. So we, thy people, the sheep of thy pasture, will give thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise to all generations. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise to him with praise. Oh, come, let us worship him. Bow down and kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And here again, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. But there is a condition. We are that. Today, if ye will hear his voice and harden not your heart. And one thinks of the apostles writing to to, uh, the Ephesians that they had not so learned Christ with respect to the things that we want to eschew in terms of this world and its lasciviousness and its selfishness and its pride and it's arrogance that he says, you haven't so learned Christ. If so, be that you have heard him and have been taught by him. And it's the same, if so, be here, if we hear the Lord's voice. Apostle Paul was a man whose whole life after his conversion was one of daily thankfulness and gratitude. It's an interesting study to look at the concept of thankfulness in the New Testament And where do you find it most? For the dominant word, which appears about 156 times, 110 times are at the hand of the pen of the Apostle Paul. And that tells us something about where his heart was. It was clear in his writing that he was at pains to talk about the vital, vital, not just a nice nicety to do, not just something that is is a convention, but vital to teach his children in the truth the importance, the critical importance of an embedded sense of faith. I want to just ask you, if you would, to turn to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Right next door to where we were just speaking. It's in verse 21, 20 and 21 with respect to hearing and being taught by Jesus as the truth is in him in the fourth chapter. But let's take a look now in the fifth chapter. 
Be ye followers of God as dear children. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself in offering a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. But in, in contradistinction to that, fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named as become a saint. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For you know this, that no whoremonger or unclean person or covetous man who is an adulterer has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And that, of course, is what was just read when we looked at Romans from verse 18 on. He tells us in the verses just preceding this chapter that we need to put on the new mind of Christ. Verse 24, that you put on the new man, which is after God created in righteousness and true holiness. And here are some of the things that qualify as the kind of people we should be, the kind of change, the kind of conversions that we need to make. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may give to him that needeth. And I think this is in relation to the one who walked disorderly that uh, we were reminded of last night by Brad. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away you with you with all from you with all malice. And rather than that, on the positive side, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And he elaborates on these things in the third chapter of Colossians. I said I wanted to tell you a short story before we, we try to come to some conclusion here. It's a story I can't tell you accurately because it's a story that came to my knowledge at least 40 years ago. And I wasn't preaching enough at that time to save it. So I can only share with you the essence of the story. I can only share with you that the essence of the story is accurate because it was burned into my brain. The details of it, I cannot. And it's a story about a German Jew in one of Hitler's dreadful concentration camps during the Holocaust. I'm going to give him a name. I'm going to, it's not his correct name, but I'm going to call him Jakob Hofmeier. And Jakob Hofmeier was written about by someone else who survived, who knew him in that concentration camp. And the thing about Jakob Hofmeier was that he had a sense of peace, an equanimity, a sense of being in control, 
a sense of of um, grace, a sense of not being overly distressed in the midst of the most horrific world one could ever imagine. He was a very devout Jew who knew his Torah inside out. But he also knew that God was God and he had every right to do whatever he saw fit. He was aware of the 28th of Deuteronomy and those prophecies. People came to him because of his peaceful demeanor. In the midst of their distress, other Jewish and other people who were there who might not have been Jewish came to him to talk to him because he was a place where they could find solace and encouragement. Where others were filled with hatred or despair or had given up, this man, each and every day, had a calmness and a consistency about him that stood out. And what happened was there were two groups of people, those who saw that and gravitated to it, and he would counsel people from what he knew of the scriptures. And he would be a source of comfort to those that he could comfort in any way, notwithstanding his own dire circumstances. They were all dying. They were living dead people. The other group of people were angry with him and thought that this man deserved to be spurned. He deserved to be treated as of no value because he would not get angry at his German persecutors. And they asked him, why is it that you cannot or you do not do this? Why don't you, if you can't get angry at them, why don't you curse God and die? As was suggested by Job's wife in her poor counsel. He said, I can't because I am grateful to be alive. And they couldn't understand how could you be grateful to be alive in that kind of living death. He was grateful because he valued being a son of Abraham and being one who had received the oracles of God. And the responsibility that went with that, the responsibility to praise God no matter what. And he had in his heart a sense of gratitude just to have been born, notwithstanding the terror of his circumstances of the moment. A gratitude to have been born a son of Abraham that was so much embedded in him that it allowed him to endure the unendurable. He died. He never made it. But others wrote of him. And I just regret that I've never kept that story. It's that kind of embedded gratitude that we need to survive in these last days, particularly. 
if we are put under great trial and tribulation. Mind anchored in gratitude for God's immeasurable goodness in our lives is what will allow us to endure much tribulation through which we are told we must all enter in order to enter the kingdom of God. Apostle Paul found it so. And so I would say to you by way of encouragement in terms of what kind of people we should be, that we work actively at cultivating a sense of embedded gratitude within us. It's a way of seeing our worlds individually in a proactive way. We all have our inner worlds of thought that create our outer worlds of perception. Words of gratitude and thankfulness can change our thoughts. And changing our thoughts and our perceptions can help us change our lives if we need to be converted. Gratitude of mind as a fundamental way of thinking each and every day can help us individually and I believe community-wide stay more comfortably in the present moment no matter how trying or difficult it may be because it helps to short-circuit that kind of thinking that says, if only, if only it was the way it used to be or if only it was the way we want it to be. The reality is life is what it is at any moment in time. If only type thinking is negative, and it's draining of our energy because it is not realistic. On the other side of that coin, gratitude to God that is rooted in our very being helps us to learn to stop taking things for granted. It helps us to count so many more of our everyday blessings that we normally fail to see in the course of our busy lives. It helps in a word to ground our values as God would have us do. And it's in those grounded values that we will find what manner of persons we ought to be. There are three short verses, actually there are five verses, but short selections from the words of the Apostle Paul I want to leave with you. From Romans 8. And this is the testimony of a man who had a gratitude in the very core of his heart and soul that allowed him to sustain his work in the face of such opposition of sinners against himself, just as did our Lord Jesus. Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, in its conclusions, verse 57. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through Jesus 
Christ our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And finally, this very short statement. The last verse of 2 Corinthians 9. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift.